Hey guys, I'm Kenz. And I'm Ash. Welcome to the Crime Potatoes Podcast. Grab your snacks, get comfy, and let's get to it. everybody welcome to the first episode of crime potatoes yes here we are we are so excited to be here and sorry my voice my nose of course is a little runny for our first episode but we're gonna make it through okay it's okay all right phoebe smelly cat smelly cat all right so today i ash am going to be telling the story um, so my case sources are the documentary from Nightma- Nightmare Next Door, Stealing Beauty, DeseretNews.com, SaltLakeTribune.com, and KSLNews.com. So this is the disappearance of Kiblin Davis. Have you heard this one? It sounds familiar, but I, I don't recognize it. All right. But I'm, I'm guessing with some of your sources, this took place in like the Salt Lake area? Yes, in Spanish Fork. Spanish Fork, Utah, actually. So, what year is it? It is 1995. Okay. So, let's get to it. All right. So, it is the morning of Tuesday, May 2nd, 1995, at the Davis home in Spanish Fork, Utah. 15 year old Kiplin Davis had woke up late for early morning driver's ed class. As any teenager would, she ple- pleaded with her parents that, to let her stay home and miss just this one class so she could get ready and do her makeup which is a normal teen thing, I feel like. Oh, for sure. I, mean, <laughs> I definitely did girls. that. Oh, yeah. yeah. But her parents turned her down her request, so she just gathered up her things and went out to the car where her mom was waiting to take her to school. In the documentary Stealing Beauty, Kiplin's mother, Tamara, mentioned that Kiplin was crying when she got in the car, but she figured, you know, it's just because she's a teenager she wants to have her hair and makeup done for school so she's just a little bit upset but 15 i mean you still got all those hormones going through little things will oh yeah make you emotional i mean i'm 23 and (laughs) still happens so all right so she didn't bother to ask what was wrong because you know she just figured what it was and by the by the time they arrived to spanish fork high school kiplin had calmed down and seemed fine so our mom handed her some lunch lunch money. <laughs> so lunch her mom money. handed her some lunch money and then just dropped her off, let her go to school. At 3.30 p.m., Richard, who is Kiplin's father, arrived home from work. And he was surprised that Kiplin hadn't been there since she was always home before him. Always by 3.30. Um, and in an interview, he actually stated that Kiplin was a very reliable teenager, um most teenagers you know they're not (laughs) they're not always reliable but he said she was always reliable always let uh her parents know where she was always made sure to call and they actually had cell phones even though this was the 90s they had cell phones and so she could easily call her parents to let her know where she was going to be if she was going to be late whatever was going on so he checked his answering machine to see if she had maybe left a message but 
there was just a message from the school and his heart sank when he heard the message. It was a school letting him know that Kiplin had missed all of her afternoon classes. So she was there for her morning classes, but then gone for her afternoon classes. And he immediately called his wife Tamara to see if she had heard from Kiplin um, and she hadn't. And so his worry just like grew. I mean, like I said, this was not like Kiplin at all. This She was, you said 15. Yeah, 15, 15. years old. Okay. She's very reliable. Like I said, like, you know, call their parents if anything was up, but they still like, you know, didn't call police or anything. They weren't jumping to conclusions. They, she was very active in like school and church activities. And so they were like, okay, we'll just call around and we'll find her. Like, we'll just give it some time, get a hold of friends, see what we can do. So by 5 p.m., Kiplin still doesn't show up, and there hasn't been any word from her. They quickly begin their search for their now-missing daughter. Tamara calls some of her friends, but don't get anything other than they had seen Kiplin before lunch. So again, no one has seen her after lunch. Um, They make their way to the high school and start asking around, but still no one there seems to have seen her either. They checked their church because Kiplun was so involved in the church activities. And again, nothing comes up. And this didn't get them any closer to finding where she was. Or As a parent, this like makes my heart sink. Like, I know. For them. Like, ah. Yeah. It, like she was supposed to be at school. She's not at school. She's not at church. Like where else would she be? Later that evening when their personal investigation had halted, They knew something was wrong and decided it was time to call the police to report their daughter missing. Soon after the call, a police officer showed up to the Davis house. And when Richard shared what had happened with his daughter like that morning and what he had heard and what he knows of what happened the rest of the day, they kind of the officers were like, let's just, you know, they're going off instinct you nobody wants to believe their 15 year old daughter is missing so of course off instinct they're like don't worry she's 15 years old you got in an argument she's probably just frustrated so it's probably just a runaway she probably you know is just hiding out with some friends maybe a boy like don't worry she'll show up which i feel like that's a legitimate thing to look at like try not to think immediately nobody goes to immediately like she's gone she's dead like nobody nobody knows at this point what's going on so you know they're like okay kind of gives them a little bit of hope um and again she's a teenager they they react way differently with arguments and yeah stuff so so the police officer is just trying to give them hope and you know, assure them that she would be trying to stay positive. Um, This didn't make Tamara and Richard feel too much better, though, just because their daughter had never done anything like this. She was trustworthy and always, always open and with communication and everything. So where she was going, what she was doing, no matter what it was, she was always open with them. So the police did send out a nationwide be on the lookout for Kiplin, Um, as there wasn't much else they could do at this moment. But while this is going on, her parents decide they are not just going to sit back and wait. I, me as a parent, I would not. I know I couldn't. I, yes, that would be so hard. So 
They made posters and they took them all around, hoping that the community could aid in bringing their daughter home. The posters don't get them any closer, but Tamara is able to get a hold of one of Kiplin's friend, friends, Eli. He said that he had seen Kiplin the day she went missing. It was during lunch and she was dancing with Chris Jepson, who was another schoolmate, and that they, because, you know, they were dancing, he said it was probably because they were working on a part of the upcoming production that they were both in. Um, well, Kiplin was in it and Chris was actually like one of the stage crew. And so he's like, oh, they're, you know, just. I'll be, I'll help you out. Yeah. Type thing. Okay. And so that wasn't all though. This friend actually added, just kind of slipped it in there, that he was not a big fan of Chris and really hoped that Kiplin wasn't getting involved with him. So, of course, like, if this is the last person that they know she's seen with, it kind of sparks a little bit of worry. Yeah. So they finally had somewhat of a lead, though. So Richard, Kiplin's father, acted immediately. He drove straight to Chris's house. When he arrives, no one is home other than Chris's sister. Richard asks where Chris is at, and she tells him that he has been at school all day, that he is most likely in the auditorium working on the play. Like I said, you know, he's part of the stage crew, so he's setting up the scenes and all that kind of stuff. So Richard jumps back in his vehicle and goes right back to the high school. When he arrives, though, it is completely empty. So he does arrive between 10 and 10.30 p.m. at the high school. The parking lot is completely empty and dark. The school itself, it looks like all the lights are off, completely empty. No sign of any movement or anything. Around 1 a.m., Kiplin's parents decided to make their way back to Chris's house after still no sign of her. There was a light on in the house and a truck parked out and a truck parked outside that they recognized. It belonged to another one of Kiplin's classmates named Rucker Leafson. Richard wants to know what was going on inside and if those boys know where Kiplin had gone. But as much as he wants to do that, wants to throw open their front door and march inside, he decides to value courtesy and not disturb them. I mean, it was after 1 a.m. So, you know, just has And some... this is all that same night? Yes. Same... Yeah, this is the all same the day. first okay. day she went missing. Okay. Richard decides, you know, we'll just go back home, you know, and hopefully tomorrow we can figure everything out. The next morning on May 3rd, with still no sign of Kiplin, the police begin to agree that something is seriously wrong and they no longer believe she is a missing teenager, which I think is good because a lot of cases, especially like I feel like the first like 48 hours, they're like, there's not much they can do, but they acted right away, which is awesome. Yes. Well, so, especially, I mean, every police department has different policies on missing persons and uh, kids, but especially her being 15, a, a child still. I'm glad that they they were they pretty much jumped to it. Like there wasn't oh, yeah. much they could do. Like yeah, you said. they still waited. You know that you know twelve hours. Twelve I guess, hours. But yeah. Still, they were like they still put they out. They wanted a, their help, and so or they wanted be to be on help. the lookout. A uh, a bolo, so to yeah. speak. <laughs> so Morgan War Warner, um, who was the school resource officer, makes his way to Spanish Fork High School. During his time as the S. SRO, he had never dealt with a missing student. So this really pushes him and urges him to do everything he can to bring Kiplin home. 
He went as far as to talk to every single class and let the students know that if they hear, see, or feel anything surrounding the disappearance of Kiplin, that they need to come and let him know. I love that because school resource officers are amazing. They, they have to build this reputation and this relationship with those students at yeah. high school. So I love that he's, he's going straight for this and being like, oh, yeah. hey, hey, guys, we got to do our part. Yeah, talking to every mm-hmm. single class. So because Warner had been working around these students for a while, he knew a lot about them. Um, this isn't like a huge school. It's not small, but it's not huge. So he can have like that personal connection with the students. And right away, they decide to pull someone out of class to talk to. Can you guess who? Chris, right? Chris Jepson. Okay, good. Detectives act right away, pull him out of social studies um, to ask him what he knows. Chris isn't nervous at all and tells them that he had been with Kipling at lunch, practicing some dance moves, just like her friend had said, for the play. However, after that, he said he went back to the rest of his afternoon classes and hadn't seen Kiplin since. They even questioned where he was after school, and he told them he was in the auditorium all afternoon and evening setting up for the upcoming play. He was there until almost 11 p.m. He even mentioned some friends that had stopped by, Timmy Olson and Rucker Leafson, who, remember, owns the truck that was spotted outside of Chris's house by mm-hmm. Kiplin's okay. dad. Chris said they finished up setting the lights and then Wait, tossed- so were there any teachers there? No. So this is a smaller school. So it's it's a little bit different at smaller schools than probably well, I guess, larger and schools. It's in the 90s. So yeah. So since they were stage crew, they had their own keys oh, to get in and set up like because, yeah, for the play and stuff. Just because, you know, they can't do everything during school hours. So they might have to come spend late nights setting up. See, that's interesting to me just because with me being in theater in high school, we couldn't be there without our director, our, yeah. our teacher. Yeah, it just so, depends on so that's, you know, that's interesting. schools and everything. Okay. But yes, so after they got his statement, they sent him back to class and went right on to find Timmy and Rucker to see if they could corroborate his story. Um, both boys backed up his story, Chris's story, and they had no, like, nothing to not believe them. Like, there's no reason for them not to believe these boys, like... Without any evidence, the cops had no choice but to move on and look for other leads. Okay, did they check to see if he was still at school? During the time, Chris Jepson, like the school attendance records. Yes. Yes, he was at school in the afternoon. Okay. So. Okay. Yes. So after talking to students all day, they learned some other interesting information um, that had happened that day. They decided to talk to another boy named Brandon Meyer. And it turned out Brandon had actually asked Kiplin out on a date for that next or for that upcoming Friday night. But right before fourth period, so which is right during lunch, um, the day, again, this is the day Kiplin went missing. Brandon called it off. Why? Because apparently he had another girlfriend who had found out about it. Okay, so wait. I mean, so he had a drama, but a teen drama for sure. So she, so he had a girlfriend. Yes. yes, still asked Kiplin out on a date, but then his girlfriend found out, and so he canceled the date with Kiplin. Yes, but that's not all. 
When police go to check the attendance records, Brandon had also missed his afternoon classes the day she went missing. And he asked his girlfriend to change the records, who helped in the office, had kind of like a direct studies class, if you want, you know, to help in the office, and she helped do whatever. And so he asked her to change the records to show that she was there. Okay, okay, let me clarify. So his girlfriend worked in the office. Yes. And had access to attendance information. Yes. And he asked her to change it to say that he was there. Yes. The same but day. She did not do it. She did not change. Good. The okay. Good girl. All right. So later police arrived to Brandon's house and he was very surprised to see them, but agreed to talk. He indicated that he went to class unless shortly after it had started because he was feeling so terrible about what he had done to Kiplin. He wanted to see her and apologize but when he went around to all the classes and wasn't able to find her, he decided he was just going to go home. When hmm. police asked him about his whereabouts the rest of the afternoon, he said he did skip the rest of the af- rest of his afternoon classes, but he went straight home. Mentioned that he then blew a tire on the way and called a friend to help him fix it. But when the police asked his buddy about this, he denies that happening. And the police aren't sure if, like, maybe he's thinking of the wrong day that he blew the tire or if his friend's just scared so he doesn't want to back up their story, they're not really sure what's happening, or if Brandon's just lying. They're not. But it all seems suspicious. Like, I gotta say, I'm, I mean, I don't know what's happening, obviously. I don't know what story to believe. But the girlfriend and this friend, they seem like in their right minds where they're like, uh, we're, we're not lying for you, dude. Let's keep going. Okay, sorry. You're I'm good. just, I, I know I'm, I'm jumping ahead, but man. All right, so obviously the stories don't match up, but Brandon insists he had nothing to do with Kiplin disappearing and sticks to his story. And without any evidence, police again have to move forward with their investigation and try to find another lead before they can take anything further. So two weeks pass with no movement in the case. The Davis family, along with police, decide to hold a press conference and ask the public for their help, as well as inform them that the FBI is now joining them in the search for Kiplin. SRO Morgan Warner states in an interview, there is no good logical reason for her to still be missing. Something is drastically wrong here. Well, especially it's been two weeks. Yes. And he's never seen a missing student. Like, this is a small town, like a smaller town, I guess. People feel safe, like they are all tied to their community and their religion and their church and everything in this community. So again, it feels safe, like nothing, nothing bad like that happens here. It's Utah. (laughs) (laughs) With no body and no evidence of foul play, months pass as police sift through every little tip that is sent in. The Davis family is worried that this case is going to go cold. It's now been a year since Kiplin has disappeared when there was a knock on the Davis front door. Who do you think it is? I don't know. I'm worried that it's the police. It's Chris. He tells Richard that he wanted to get something off his chest. And he tells him that he had nothing to do with Kiplin's disappearance. But he states, I really need to get this off my chest. I had nothing to do with Kiplin's disappearance. Something's weird about that, right? <laughs> like, if you're... Okay, when, if, you, when you say that he came to get something off his chest, I'm like, wait, is he going to... Confess or something, uh, right? Yeah. So that that is really weird. Yeah, but he came to get something off his chest and say... Okay, so 
He had nothing to do with it. We have two suspects right now. Yeah. Brandon mm-hmm. and Chris. Yes. And they're both very suspicious about Very yes. sus, <laughs> as these kids say these days. Yes. Very, yeah. Very sus. All right. So. I'm saying that right, kids. Like I was saying, with it being a year since he had heard anything with this boy, Richard finds it very strange that he just came over out of the middle of nowhere. And that's all he wanted to say. Yes, that he had nothing to do with it. So Richard was like, I'm going to grill this kid. So he decides to ask As him. A, I any, any dad. <laughs> yes. Especially the dad of a teenage girl. Yes. Like, so... He asked him if he really had anything to do with it, and Chris just kept denying it. Richard didn't believe him, and after the encounter, he let the police know what happened. The police agreed. This was kind of a strange confession, if you will. It's suspicious. They and they decide that they need to put more pressure and see if they can get any more information from the three boys, Chris, Rucker, and Timmy, since they're all claiming to be together. They want to talk to, of course, Chris. Yes. But since Rucker and Timmy are backing up their story, they want to kind of see if, you know, they can get any of them to break and give some more information. So they bring all the boys in for questioning, and all three of them still deny any involvement. They are even so adamant that they agree to take polygraph tests, which we know polygraph tests aren't always reliable. Well, they're... What's the word I'm looking for? They're they're not admissible in court. Yes. But it will still, you know, well help them like get an idea. Yes. Like I feel like still. Yes. So first up is Chris, who passes with flying colors. Timmy is next, and before the polygraph test is performed, they do a written test and this is where the case starts to break open. Oh boy. Timmy writes that he did see Kiplin outside of school that day, that she had gone up with him and Rucker to Spanish Fork Canyon. He stated that he watched Kiplin and Rucker walk over the hillside and Rucker returned alone. When he asked Rucker where Kiplin was, he just replied, don't worry about it. And so, of course, the police are going to start asking questions. They're going to worry about it. Oh, yeah. So immediately before they even start the polygraph right after they're in test they start asking questions and timmy wads up the piece of paper so wads up his written test and throws it in the trash can and asks for a lawyer so now we have even uh, okay keep going you're fine okay. Ah, okay so although although they do have this little bit of information there is still no kiplin no body no kiplin no crime scene well are they gonna go look up in the canyon now We'll get to that. Okay, sorry. You're good. So, they obviously don't have enough evidence to go through and charge anyone with anything yet. But the next morning, law enforcement gets straight to work. They go up to Spanish Fort Canyon and start digging. They have a dog go around and see if they could pick up any scent. But nothing was found. With getting no closer to closure, Richard and Tamara have Kiplin legally declared dead. Um, They had a headstone made and bought a plot at the cemetery to help them try to receive any little bit of closure. So at this point, like, yeah. Yes. They wanted a memorial to be able to go and visit and celebrate Kiplin's life. Um, Even though they aren't sure if she is dead or not, they did to, you know, legally declare her dead because they wanted 
as hard as it is, they needed some, some little bit of closure of to give them yeah. motive to just keep going on with life. You know how our parents would always leave the porch light on um, until we got home? Mm-hmm. So I'm sure a lot of our you out there too um, also had your parents do this. Leave the light on, the porch light on, until you arrived home at night. Well, since the day Kiplin went missing, Richard has made sure the porch light is on and refuses to turn it off until she is home. I thought this was just so important to add to the story because it's, it's not just that. It's not just a story. These are real people and all this stuff really happened. So I just think it's important that we remember that we remember and honor Kiplin and her family. It just kind of like breaks my heart. It you breaks know? my heart. Like, like you said earlier, like especially like being a parent, like. I can't even imagine. Oh, yeah. It freaks me out. Yeah. So. Like, that's the only thing I can think of is it freaks me out. Yes. And it hurts. Like, I hurt for them. Oh, yeah. Same. Even though I was only a couple years old at the time. Like, seriously. Yeah. It's just, ah, okay. So, over six years go by, lots of porch lights were changed from burning out, and it's now 2002. You have probably heard of the Elizabeth Smart case. Oh, yeah. Everyone knows, usually. Most oh, people I know about that case. It was a very public case that was, was actually. Mine. Yeah. So this was going around at the same time in Salt Lake. It was, like I said, a very public case. It was covered very well. There was a lot of attention on it. And Richard believed his daughter's case deserved, deserved this same treatment. It's been seven years, and he wanted her to get that same attention. Well, as she, as she should. As she should, yes. So that case ended up going in front of a grand jury, and with the little evidence that they have in Kiplin's case, they are unable to make any charges at just the state level. Um, they want to get a grand jury, hoping that they can find a probable cause to charge the boys. And by the boys, I mean Chris, Rucker, and Timmy. Because these three obviously have something to do with it. At this point, I mean, I shouldn't say obviously, but there's enough circumstantial there's a little, yeah. evidence. So law enforcement go around one more time asking the public for tips and trying to get anything that can help them move forward with charges. When the assistant U.S. attorney Richard Lambert hears David, the Davis's plea, he approves the request. Unfortunately, this is not a quick process and takes years. So over the next two, police deliver subpoenas to anyone they think might be withholding information. Friends of the boys, family, and other classmates. So finally, they are getting stories and people are giving them tips about the three boys that are in question. Okay, I just gotta say, like, again, as a parent, if I even had an inkling that my son or sons were involved i i couldn't keep quiet like i could not yeah i unfortunately there is not like, I mean, a I lot want, of information yeah, about I mean, the parents but also like you never want to believe your kid did no it. you so, don't i mean i'm i i get mama bear and i get very protective yeah. of my kids but at the same time yeah so there's just not a lot of information them, on that so i don't also, know so that's interesting yeah okay so sorry i didn't mean to interrupt i just side. I find that interesting. Okay, sorry. One person came forward saying that they had witnessed Rucker threatening Timmy after dropping his name in the polygraph test. 
Around the same time, Chris's now ex-wife came forward with something Chris had said. They had been watching a scary movie at home, and the discussion came up about what the worst thing they had ever done was. Chris replied, what if I told you that I killed Kiplin Davis? Of course, she immediately was, like, pretty startled, and he was just like, oh, I'm just kidding. You know, I'm just kidding. So. But why would you say that? Yeah, it's a little weird. But another eerie tip comes in. This one about Timmy. Years previous, Timmy was at a party. The TV was on, and there was, you know, a commercial that popped up about Kiplin's disappearance. He came out and said that he knew where Kiplin was, that she got what she deserved, and he was the one that did it. Even making the statement, I killed her. Not one, but two witnesses came forward with this encounter. And they didn't even, so these two different encounters that came forward, they didn't call together. They each called separate. So, so they this didn't... is like a cooperating story. Yeah. All right. So finally, everything is kind of starting to come together. It's time for Chris, Rucker, and Timmy to take the stand. They each still deny their involvement, but the judge decides that there is enough evidence to charge each of the boys with perjury for lying to the grand jury. Because of witness testimonies, Chris and Rucker get a lighter punishment while Timmy doesn't get off so easy. He is charged with 15 counts of perjury, sentenced to 12 and a half years in federal prison while Chris is sentenced to five years and Rucker is sentenced to four years also in federal prison. But it doesn't end here, luckily. With the strong testimonies they had received, they were were also able to charge Timmy and Chris with first-degree murder at the state level. In May of 2009, Chris pleads no contest for a reduced charge of the obstruction of justice, maintaining that he had nothing to do with Kiplin's death. The judge accepts his plea. Chris was the one that told his ex-wife that he had killed her. Yes, he said, what if I I, told you I had killed? Yeah, what if I told you that I killed Kiplin Davis? Yes. So the judge accepts his plea as there is no body and no evidence. In February of 2011, Timmy admits to witnessing the murder, but still claims he didn't do it himself, saying he witnessed an individual push her down and hit her in the head with a rock. He claims later that he went back to where she was killed and moved her body to another location and buried her. However, Timmy refuses to tell them where and also won't identify who the other individual is. This part is really breaks my heart. Kiplin's father actually begs Timmy to reveal the location. And if he does, he promises to be Timmy's biggest advocate and help him get a lighter sentence. He is to the I, point I, where he just, he just wants his daughter home. He That's just wants her home. And in all honesty, I do not blame him. No. So, of course, Timmy still refuses, even with Richard begging and, you know, trying to advocate for him. He still refuses to give up the location of Kiplin's, do- uh, Kiplin's body, ending with him pleading guilty to felony manslaughter. Richard says that the porch light will remain on until they are able to bring Kiplin home and lay her to rest. All he wants is to have his daughter home. That's it? And that is it. That is the disappearance of Kiplin Davis. She, her body has still not been found. And Timmy is the main 
they really think Timmy is the one that killed her. And his friends know. The friends, you know, yeah. They're not sure. It kind of was said, um, I know this is like a lot of speculation, but they're kind of saying that they're not sure that Chris like had anything to do with it and they don't think Rucker did, but they both heard about it after the fact. And that, you know, so. But then why would Chris literally say, what if I told you I killed Kiplin Davis? I mean, that's just who knows. Yeah, I mean, it is eerie and I don't know, but just because of all the evidence they found, like I agree with them that Timmy definitely was the one that, like the main one in the story that had done something to her. But I'm also wondering if like maybe Chris could have been there when it happened, but wasn't the one to actually kill her. But you know, when you're just, it's hard to say because they were just sitting there watching a movie. He might have just wanted wife. I mean, you hear stories all the time. You know, yeah, when they're mad at. Oh yeah, don't want to blame the ex-wife at all. No, but you never, you never know. But it just it seems suspicious. Like why would she lie about that? Yeah, because it's not something to make light of. Sure. Yeah. No. Ah, that that's it. Um, I just I hurt for the family because for me I'm like even at this point they they're pretty sure they know what happened, but still no body, not knowing for sure. Like I, I couldn't. Yeah, it's it's hard. Not the not knowing. And like I said, to this day, Richard leaves the porch light on and vows to leave it on until she is bring home to brought home to rest. It's been Um, almost thirty years. Almost. Almost. Yep. In about two years, it'll be thirty years. So, if you or anyone you know may know where Kiblin's body is. Or have um, any information to lead. Please, yeah, please reach out to the Spanish Fork Police Department. Police Department and give them any tips to be able to bring her home and lay her to rest. Yeah. So that's our story. Wow. Wow. That's all I have to say is yeah. wow. All right. Ugh. Well, we will see you next week. And stay Stay. safe, potatoes. Yes, stay safe, potatoes. Stay safe.